So good to see all of you. It's not good morning. It's resurrection weekend. And um, amen. Amen. Praise God. But the resurrection has really no meaning unless you go to it through the cross. Unless you reflect and understand what was going on on Good Friday. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm uh, the senior pastor here at Wilden Hills Church. And it's so good to see all of you here on this real sacred night. Uh, the time where we celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Um, if you have kids with you, and there's a number of kids here. I, having grown up in a very... Uh, strict Catholic environment as a hyperactive kid understand how difficult it is to sit through sedate services. I mean the rowdy ones are okay though we didn't have any back then uh, but, but uh, quiet somber ones and this one will be more along those lines uh, can be difficult. If your child starts acting up just be considerate for the people around you. Uh, we have happy rooms in the back that are soundproof and we encourage you to take them back there if they uh, start underappreciating the uh, somberness of <laughs> This, uh, this message. You know, I was, uh, I, I like to read a lot and talk a lot about quantum physics. I am right now with some friends working on a book on quantum physics and its theological implications. I know I'm a weirdo. <laughs> but I read, you know, and in quantum physics it's a bizarre thing because you have to try to get your mind around something that is both a wave and a particle. And and how it is that, that electrons can leap from one orbit to another without traversing the, the space in between them. And, and how it is that a, a, a particle can be in a superposition of states. And it's really quite unimaginable. And I read one person who said one time, anyone who thinks that they finally understood quantum physics hasn't begun to understand it. You only understand it when you realize that you can never fully understand it. And that is exactly the position we're in when it comes to the love of God. When we think about the cross and what the cross means, what God did for us. If you have any understanding of the, of the, the dire situation that we were in as human beings and how little we deserved this, when you understand the, the extent that God went, the infinite distance He crossed and the infinite price He paid, in order to be reconciled with us and to change our eternal destiny. When you, when you, when you begin to understand the love of God, you, you realize that you can't possibly fully understand it. Anyone who thinks that they really understand why God loves them and, and how great the love of God is, I want to encourage you to think again because you just told me that you really don't understand it. His love is incomprehensible, just incomprehensible. That's why Paul prays in, in Ephesians chapter 3, I pray that... You with all the saints, says to the Ephesians Christians, may comprehend what is the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of the love of Jesus Christ that passes all comprehension. I, in other words, he's saying, I pray that you comprehend that you can't comprehend it. All you can do is appreciate it and be transformed by it. And all of that love, that incomprehensible love, is centered on the cross. The place where God expresses his infinite unsurpassable, unwavering, unconditional, totally ununderstandable love for us. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Just changes everything. So we're focusing on the cross tonight, which leads to the resurrection. 
And I want to, in particular, focus in on this concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God. In fact, I'll title this, The Lamb of God. In John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is uh, introducing Jesus into the world, uh, or to the world, he says, look, or behold, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist's introductory statement about Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, those of us who have been, you know, are familiar with the Bible and maybe have been around church for a while, the, 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 calling Jesus the Lamb doesn't sound that unusual. But put yourself in the position of a person in the first century who never heard that expression applied to a human being before. That would be rather odd. The Lamb of God, he doesn't look like a lamb. And what does his being a lamb have to do with taking away the sin of the world? And throughout the New Testament, we, we read about Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? And I want us to reflect on this, and then we'll go into another time of worship. As with most things in the New Testament, to understand the concept of Jesus being the Lamb of God who gave his life to take away the sin of the world, to understand that, you have to go back to the Old Testament. And in particular, to understand the significance of calling Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, we have to go back to the Exodus, the time when God delivered his children out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, most of us are somewhat familiar with the story, but I'll briefly rehash it again for those who aren't. Uh, God, for a variety of reasons, providentially orchestrated it so that the, the nation that he wanted to use to reach the whole world, his chosen people, the people of Israel, he orchestrated it so that they would be in bondage, uh, in slavery in Egypt for four centuries. Among other things, this would ensure that they would be insulated from pagan influences. He wanted a people that he himself could form, who wouldn't be formed by other cultures and other religions and, and other deities or whatever. And, this, and, and the only way to really do that uh, that I can see is to insulate them in this sort of situation in Egypt. It was sort of an incubator where, where God was, was giving birth to his, what he calls in the Old Testament, his firstborn son, and that is the people of Israel. And God wanted to raise up these people to be a holy, uh, a holy nation, a holy priesthood, who would then he would use to reach the whole world. That was the plan. And so for four centuries, they are in Egypt, under, uh, in a state of slavery under Pharaoh. And then came a time where the Lord said, for a, again, for a variety of reasons we can't go into, enough is enough, the time is up, I hear the cries of my people, and now I will deliver them out of Egypt. And so he calls Moses out of the burning bush and commissions him and sends him to Egypt and to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Of course, never has it been in history that slave owners want to let go of their slaves. It's, it's free labor. And so Pharaoh having a hard heart, says, no, I won't let my people go. And then proceeds a narrative where God sends ten plagues on Egypt in order to force Pharaoh finally to let his people go. The last of these plagues was the deal breaker. God sent forth the angel of death and took the firstborn child of every family who's, who didn't have the blood of the lamb sprinkled over their doorposts. And that brings us to the narrative I want to read. This is found in Exodus chapter 12. He says, Tell the whole community, he's talking to uh, Moses here, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day, 
of this month. He's very specific here. Each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. The animals you choose must be a year old, year old males, without defect. There can't be any blemish. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So there's four days where you're supposed to take care of them. And when all the members of the community of Israel, then all the, the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over fire. On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. There's a variety of reasons for that we can't go into it right now. He says, And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I want us to notice that. On all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destruction plague, no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Father, open our eyes and open our minds and open our hearts to see more clearly, to experience more deeply the profundity of your love expressed through the Lamb of God. Open our minds and open our hearts to understand and receive and be transformed by this message we pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. There's a number of, of ways in which this passage is profound when it comes to thinking about the cross. Uh, as God frequently does, uh, he uses in this passage a historical narrative, historical events, to uh, symbolize spiritual realities or symbolize things that will be coming to pass later on. And this passage is packed full of symbolic references to a number of things, but most profoundly, especially for our purposes here tonight, it's packed full of references to Christ. It tells us a great deal about Christ and what was going on when Christ came into the world and the meaning of his death. And most importantly, it tells us what it means to say that Jesus is the Lamb of God. I'm just going to bring out four areas of symbolic reference in this passage. First concerns just a number of details about the Lamb. Note that the Lord told Moses that the children of Israel were to get the Lamb four days before the Lamb was to be sacrificed. And during those four days, they were to care for the Lamb. And according to rabbinic tradition, this was also the time when they would continue to inspect the Lamb to make sure that, in fact, it was a, a Lamb that was without defect and therefore was worthy of a sacrifice to, to, to Yahweh. So for four days, they inspected this Lamb. It had to be spotless. Couldn't have any blemish. Couldn't have any physical defect or, or defect in terms of appearance. And then on the fourth day, the Lamb would be slaughtered. The spotless lamb would be slaughtered. The parallels with Christ and the way that this is a type of Christ are really profound. They couldn't possibly have been orchestrated by human beings. It tells us that God was behind the scenes and everything that went on in Christ's life. Four days before he was crucified, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This is what we call Palm Sunday. And the people hailed him on the road as he rode in there. 
I used to wonder sometimes what were all those people doing on the road? Uh, did, what, did word seep out that Christ was coming and why were they all of a sudden so excited with Christ coming and, and whatnot? Uh, one explanation, and I think it's a plausible explanation, is this. We know from rabbinic records that uh, all people had to acquire a lamb four days before Passover, if not earlier than that. And it was customary for the high priest, who at this time was Caiaphas, the high priest would go and get a, a, a lamb that had been uh, examined to be spotless, and this lamb would be offered up on behalf of all of Israel. And he would ride into Jerusalem with this lamb, and people would, at, by this point, it had become something of a ceremony, uh, where they'd line the streets and sort of worship God for the lamb that God had provided for the sacrifice of all of Israel. And it's on that day, perhaps just moments before the high priest comes in with his literal lamb, that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And I'm sure that none of the people really had a full understanding of what was going on. That here, the fulfillment of that typology was in their midst. The real lamb of God was riding into Jerusalem four days before the Passover. And during those four days, the Gospels tell us the Pharisees interrogated him, trying to find fault with him, trying to set him up. They were looking for a blemish for four days. And then during his trial, both the Romans and the Jews interrogated him. But it tells us in the Gospels that they could not find any fault in him. They could not find any blemish in him. They could not find any sin in him. There was no crime they could accuse him of. But of course, as you know, the lamb was slain anyways. Despite the fact that he was innocent, he was slain. In fact, as with the Exodus passage, precisely because he was innocent, the lamb was slain. And so they took Christ to the courthouse, and they mocked him, and they spit on him, and they took him in the open court where they beat him, they whipped him. Uh, they led him before the crowds, they put a mock robe on him, they put a mock crown of thorns on his head, driving the thorns into his scalp. And then they took him to Calvary and nailed spikes through his wrists and his ankles and nailed him to the cross and then pierced him uh, with a spear. The Lamb of God had been slaughtered. Tried for four days and found proven to be innocent, the Lamb was slaughtered. The second thing I want us to see in the Exodus passage that is fulfilled in Christ is this. Having slaughtered the lamb, the Jews were then to sprinkle the blood on the, on the top and on the sides of the doorposts. And when the Lord passed over, or the angel of the Lord passed over the house, seeing the blood on the doorposts uh, would, 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 would tell them that uh, the, the judgment would pass over. That's why this is called the Passover. It was the time when the judgment of God passed over the house if, but only if, the blood was on the doorpost, only if the house was covered by the blood. Now, I, I, I wanted us to chew on this a little bit. First, notice this. This is so important. It says in the Exodus passage that in slaying the firstborn child throughout all of Egypt, the passage in Exodus 12 tells us that God was judging the gods of Egypt. The gods of Egypt. God's issue really wasn't with the people at all. It was with the gods of Egypt. In fact, if you understand uh, this whole narrative in its historical context, all of the plagues were specific acts of war against various gods of Egypt. 
For example, the people of Egypt worshipped the god of the Nile. And so one of the plagues is the Lord turning the, the, the water of uh, the Nile into blood. Uh, they found special spiritual significance in frogs and represented one of their deities with a frog. So one of the plagues was uh, a, a plague of frogs. They found, uh, found spiritual significance in locusts. And so one of the plagues was, was, was locusts. And, and what the Lord is doing in all of these is saying, I am the Lord God. I am over the gods of Egypt. And so it was with the firstborn child. There were special gods who were to protect the firstborn child. And this is God's way of saying, I, not them, am the Lord God Almighty, the one true creator God of the universe. But I want us to see that the issue wasn't first and foremost with the people. It was with the gods who held the people in bondage. And the people got judged only because they were aligned with the gods who were being judged. And that is sort of a microcosm for what is true throughout the cosmos and throughout all of history. Our world, though most people are too blinded to see it, our world is in a state of warfare, of spiritual warfare. There's conflict in the spiritual realm going on all around us. And what we learn from the New Testament, and we could have got it from Exodus 12 just as easily as this, God's enemies are not people. God is in love with people. God's always been in love with people. God's issue isn't with people. God's issue is with the gods who hold people in bondage. God's war, God's real enemy in God's war is against Satan and against the principalities and powers and the dominions and the authorities and, 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 and the demons that, 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 that plague the world. God's enemies aren't people any more than our enemies are supposed to be people. Paul says that our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers and dominions and authorities. The, 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 the wrath that, God, that the Lamb protects us from isn't a wrath that's first and foremost towards people. It's a wrath towards the gods of this age. God's real enemies are the principalities and powers. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 25 that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. This place of judgment was for the devil and his angels. People were never intended to go there. They go there only because they refuse to come out from under bondage to these principalities and powers, to Satan and to demons. Humans have gotten caught up in this warfare that now engulfs the world. We got caught up in this spiritual war. We did it volitionally. We did it on our own. We chose to do that. In fact, the Bible tells us that whenever we sin, whenever we break covenant with God, we put ourselves in bondage to the principalities and powers. And if we stay in that condition, then when they are judged, just like with the Egyptian people, we are judged along with them. This is one of the reasons why Jesus had to be sinless. He tells us in the book of John that Satan has no hold on me because I... In contrast to all of you, I've never sinned. So he's got nothing on me. And that's the way that he is the spotless lamb of God who ends up defeating the devil. The wrath that the lamb protects us from isn't God's wrath towards us in a personal way. As though the father you know, has, has this animosity and hatred towards you, but the son has to step in there and say, No, dad, don't do it. Take me instead. Some people conceive of God like that, as though there's like two parts of God, one who hates you and one who loves you. But Jesus reveals God's love towards us 
But in the same way, he reveals God's animosity, God's warfare against the powers. God, the, the wrath that the Lamb of God protects us from is the wrath that's directed towards Satan. It's the wrath that's directed towards sin. It's the wrath that's directed towards rebellion. It's the wrath that's directed towards oppression. It's the wrath that's directed towards everything that oppresses humanity, that destroys things, that's contrary to his love, and that's contrary to his life. And the reason God's wrath burns towards those is precisely because he's so in love with us because he sees what we so often don't see and that is that our bondage to greed and our bondage to sin our bondage to rebellion our bondage to trying to be lord of our own life our bondage to the principalities and powers it destroys us and God in love for us doesn't want us to be destroyed but when we choose to be in bondage to those things, to remain in bondage to those things, then we, like the Egyptian people, are judged along with those things. We go down, as it were, with the Titanic. But God's made a way of escape. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ. When the Egyptians, or when the Jews would put the blood on their doorposts, on the top and along the side of the doors. What they were saying, they were proclaiming to the principalities and powers. They were saying, we don't belong to Pharaoh any longer. We don't belong to Egypt any longer. We don't belong to the gods of Egypt any longer. We belong to Yahweh. We belong to the Lord, our God, the creator of all, who has shown forth his power over all other gods, and we will have no other gods before him. And so also when we apply the blood of Jesus Christ to our life, praise God, uh, it's just a way of saying when we accept that what Jesus did, he did for us. When we say that shed blood was for us, we're covering the doorpost of our life with his blood. The top is covered with blood. The sides are covered with blood. We're surrounded by the blood. And where there is the blood, when you are surrounded by the blood, there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. The judgment of God passes over. Hallelujah. There is no sin. There is no guile. Hallelujah. If God be for us, who can be against us? The gods of Egypt can lay no charge against us any longer. We're freed from the accuser. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, all that was written against us was nailed to the cross. That's what applying the blood to our life does. We proclaim that we belong to Jesus Christ. We're saved by Jesus Christ. We're loved by Jesus Christ. We're not in the bondage to anyone or anything any longer and never shall be again. We're covered by the blood. Thank God for the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ. It causes, it causes the wrath of God to pass over us. If you are one who is covered by that blood, which simply means that you have genuinely in your heart of hearts accepted that what Jesus did, he did for you, and you own that, and you live that, if you've applied it to your doorpost, that the sacrifice lamb of God was for you, you never again, should fear the wrath of God. You reverence God because he's awesome, beyond comprehension. But perfect love casts out fear. And when Jesus Christ dies, he manifests perfect love. Perfect, unwavering, unsurpassable, incomprehensible love. Never again in the life of the believer should there be fear of the condemnation of God. And what is most amazing about all of this Whenever you look at Old Testament typology, you'll find that God overfulfills them. Because not only does he supply a lamb for us in the New Testament, but the lamb turns out to be God himself. God himself becomes the lamb. 
And the person of Jesus Christ, the representative of God, the Son of God, he becomes a human being. And in Jesus Christ, he takes upon himself, he absorbs within himself everything that could possibly set us against God. He absorbs within himself the wrath of the powers, the principalities and powers. Uh, he absorbs within himself all sin. He absorbs within himself the wrath of God. God becomes the object of his own wrath, if you will, in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. And what does that tell us about the love of God? That God would go to that extreme for us. The Jews were, 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 were enslaved not of their own free will, but we chose it for ourselves. We choose to be in bondage. But God still comes after us. The hound of heaven will not leave us alone. He pursues us to the very end. There is no extent, no depth, no height that he, that he could have gone to that he didn't go to. He went as far as anyone could go. You think quantum physics is incomprehensible. Try and get your mind around this one. That God, the God of this universe, loves you to the point of dying a God-forsaken, hellish, damnable death on the cross of Calvary. But that is the love of God. And if you get that love of God, if you begin to get a glimpse of what that's about, Quantum physics is a piece of cake. <laughs> that is incomprehensible. But I want you to know that God's always loved you. His issue hasn't been with you. His heart grieves when we are in bondage. His judgment is on the gods of Egypt, the gods of this world. Don't be aligned with those gods, and you won't be aligned with that judgment. The third thing I want us to see from this passage is this. Having been covered by the blood, the Israelites were now told to get out of Egypt. That's why the blood is there, to get out of Egypt. You see, it's one thing to have the condemnation of God pass over you, but there's another step to take, and that is walking out of your slavery. And the reason why God has the judgment pass over you is that you'll be alive and empowered now to walk out of Egypt. And so also, kingdom people... We're not to just use the blood of Jesus Christ to sort of get out, to make sure that we don't go to hell. Use the blood of Jesus Christ as fire insurance, as some, pay, uh, some say. No, the purpose for getting free is to be free. The purpose for being forgiven is to walk in forgiveness. The purpose for getting a new identity in Jesus Christ is to live out that identity in Jesus Christ. The purpose for being made a child of the king is so that now you can walk as a child of the king. The purpose for being empowered by the Spirit is so that now you can walk in the Spirit. And there's a whole lot of people who don't seem to really get that. They, they, they want just sort of the, the bare minimum legal forgiveness, but, but don't want to cash in on, on, on what that purchases for us. What it purchases for us is, is what the Bible calls abundant life. He's come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He's come that we might have joy unspeakable and full of glory. And so he wants us to walk out of Egypt. Now coming out of Egypt, now is where we got to pack up our bags. There's things we got to do. Now we might have to walk through a desert. Now we might have to face some Amalekites. Now there might be a price to pay. But that's what freedom is all about. It may be that you're in a bondage of some sort, an Egypt, if you will. And, and though you have been set free and the judgment of God has passed over you, there's still an echo of the God of Egypt who holds you in bondage of some area of your life. But what God is saying tonight is this. The cross is all about freedom freedom. The cross is all about walking free. He paid this in, in, in insurmountable, unimprovable price so that you could pack up your bags and get out of the bondage that you're in. Your Egypt might be your despair. Your Egypt might be your hopelessness. Your Egypt might be uh, an attitude that you have, uh, uh, unforgiveness in your life. Get out of that Egypt. Walk free of that. The blood has set you free. Pick up your bags and walk out of that and start heading towards the promised land. Praise God. 
the land that God has for you. Amen. What's your bondage? He wants you to walk in freedom. The final thing I'll, I'll say about this passage, the fourth thing that it represents is this. Before they packed up their bags and walked out of Egypt, they ate. And the Lord told them, every year at this time, I want you to eat the lamb that you sacrificed. That innocent lamb that was sacrificed for you, I want you to eat that lamb and have a meal. And he gives very specific instructions about what's supposed to be in that meal. It is the Passover meal. And they eat the lamb. And that tells us, I think, two things. One is that the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, he's not just supposed to be sprinkled on our doorpost. He's supposed to be ingested. And that is our nourishment. In fact, the Jews didn't know when the next meal was coming. They ate that, believing this was the nourishment that's supposed to get them into the promised land. And God always provided for them on that. Jesus Christ, the sacrificed Lamb of God, is our nourishment. Not physically, of course, but he's our nourishment spiritually. We're to take him in. We're to eat him. He says in John 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. He didn't mean that literally, of course, but what he's saying there is this. I want to be on the inside of you. I want to be your all. I want to be the thing that gives you reason to live. I want to be the thing that, 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 that feeds you, that causes you to growth. I want to be your hope. I want to be your ambition. I want to be your identity. I want to be your joy. I want to be your peace. I want to be what your life is all about. I, I want you to ingest me, take, you in, take me into every area of my life. I want the forgiveness that I've purchased at such a costly price. I want that forgiveness to seep into every nook and cranny of your being. I want it to go where where maybe no one's ever gone, maybe into places that you yourself don't allow yourself to see. I want to go into the ugly places of your life, the painful places of your life, the wounded areas of your life. I want to be your food. I want to be your sustenance. I want to become part of you. I want to be on the inside of you. We are to ingest this lamb on a daily basis. We just take the love and we just eat it. We bask in it. And we take Jesus Christ on the inside. And we say, Lord, live your life through me. Live your life through me. And to, remind, to, to help us remember that, the Lord said to the Jews and the Lord says to us today, whether you're Jew or Gentile, if you're a kingdom person, this is what the Lord says to you. This is a memorial. Always remember this. And to help you, here's the meal you're to carry out. In the New Testament, you see, Jesus was celebrating Passover at the Last Supper. That was a Passover meal. And how poignant. That here as they're celebrating the lamb who would free them from condemnation and get them out of Egypt, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is leading the supper. And that's when he tells us, here's the meaning of the cup and here's the meaning of the bread. And whenever you do this, in the same way that the Israelites will always remember how Yahweh delivered them out of Egypt, we are to remember how Yahweh delivered us out of our Egypt. And we're to remember the price it costs him. And we're to remember the love of God that passes all understanding that led to our salvation. Now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a little bit. We're going to enter into a time of worship that will include that. It will also include an offering. And so if the ushers would come forward, I'd like to take up an offering. Do you know this? Several times as Moses is talking to Pharaoh, listen to this. He says, let my people go that we may go out in the desert and offer sacrifices to our Lord. 
Part of the purpose of getting free is to offer sacrifices to the Lord. That's part of the freedom. It's one way of saying nothing has possession of me. And so we give back to the Lord, however he leads us, a portion of what he's given to us. It is worship. We're ascribing worth to him. So, Father, as we now go into this next part of this service, take these gifts, Lord God. Bless those who can give and bless those who can't give, but be creating in each of our hearts a Calvary mindset and a Calvary life and a Calvary character that finds joy in giving to further the kingdom of God. And Holy Spirit, will you now just take control of the rest of this service and make the beauty of Jesus Christ on the cross more real to us than it's ever been before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.